going to be studying at the end of Matthew chapter 11 this morning, so if you'd like to open there. We're going to focus on the last five verses, but I'm going to begin back a little bit earlier so we're kind of in context to what's going on. So when you get to Matthew 11, you'll turn to verse 16. Matthew 11, 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you... They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, they would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And truly, as we talked about Wednesday night, those three cities, if you go to Israel today, those three cities are ruins. They're in prime beachfront location on the Galilee. They're in a beautiful area, a more temperate climate there in Israel. And yet, these three cities that were once Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are just archaeological digs, ruins, uninhabited. But at that time, verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy-laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Lord, this morning we come to you. We come to you. Father, it's my prayer today that everyone who walks in the door will come to you. Whether long-time believers or prayerfully, Father, someone just checking Jesus out, I pray we would all come to you. As the answer for our restlessness, our weariness, our burdens, our struggles, our strife, Jesus, we come to you. Would you enlighten us as to the depth of your character this morning and Once again, Jesus, reveal more of Yourself to our hearts, not just to our heads. And show us the relationship that You have called us into. 
We pray, Spirit of Christ, that You would be our teacher today. Opening our hearts and our spirits to You in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to take a show of hands. I won't do that, but just ask kind of the rhetorical question, how many of you are tired? How many of you are just tired? (laughs) Cheryl got home, as you all know, last Sunday night. Flew in at 11.30 from Ghana. And she's still struggling to get back on the time schedule. About 8.30 or 9 o'clock, she is gone in the evening. She's having to try and nap during the day. and uh, She's just exhausted. And for my own part, the last two weeks have been really tiring. Uh, While Cheryl was gone, you know, I was doing double duty. I was taking care of kids and all that going on and, and trying to do ministry stuff. And what was interesting to me... I mean, interesting is not the right word, but there are an awful lot of, of hurts right now, and not only pains and illnesses and sicknesses, but a lot of a lot of hurts in the body. And so, I just found myself tired. You know, I, I normally like to stay up a little later and, uh, you know, just fidget around the house and do things. And I, I've been myself nine thirty, ten o'clock, and I've just been exhausted. The election, state of our world. And they say when you're in your 40s that you get real serious about things like this. And I've been trying not to get too serious, but maybe that's just what, what's going on here. Maybe when I get to my 50s, I'll be like, whatever, who cares? Those of you in your 50s, maybe you can enlighten me on that. But I've been thinking about this, and as we came upon this passage this morning, it, it really struck me personally. It's meant a lot to me. And all week long, I've, I've just been coming to Jesus. And we're going to talk about what that means. But those of you who who keep track of the things going on in Israel, you may have heard Ehud Olmert this last week. If you know who Ehud Olmert is, he is the Prime Minister acting now of of Israel. He's on his way out the door. Ariel Sharon was Prime Minister before him. Ehud Olmert was his Deputy Prime Minister, kind of his Vice President. And Ariel Sharon fell into a coma, leaving Ehud Olmert in charge. And I personally haven't been real pleased (laughs) with what I've seen. Uh, not that I could do a better job. But he's on his way out the door because of corruption charges. Money problems, financing things. And it's been going on and on and on. And finally he's at the point of having to step down. So interesting things are happening there. But Ehud Omer was once one of Israel's leading hawks. A defense man. Protect our borders. Fight for them. Keep it strong. But he's leaving office, this article said, and from the AP out of Jerusalem, November 11th, 2008. He's leaving office an outspoken dove. Forced out by corruption charges, Omer to saying something that used to be fringe opinion among Israelis, that to make peace with the Palestinians, Israel must make sweeping territorial concessions, including Arab parts of Jerusalem. That would be dividing the city. He said his words, We must relinquish parts of our homeland as well as Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem and return to the seed of territory that was the state of Israel before 1967 with the necessary adjustments arising from the reality that has since been created. He said in one of two speeches this week in which he laid out his credo. The ideology he once espoused of keeping the territory Israel captured in the 1967 Mideast War, quote, will not work. It is already not working. We were wrong. We did not see the big picture, Omer said. 
Unless the land was partitioned into Jewish and Palestinian states, it would morph into one country in which an Arab majority would mean the end of Jewish statehood, he warned. The moment of truth has come, he said, and there's no escaping it. If, God forbid, we drag our feet, we might lose the support of the idea for two states, and the alternative is inconceivable. Never before has a serving Israeli Prime Minister spoken so forcefully for partitioning the land and it was all the more striking giving Omer's background. Why would he say such a thing? Why would one who was so strong in defense come out with, with such a statement of, of retreat? What motivates such a stark turnaround in a governing philosophy? Well, if we go back three years to June of 2005, I think we can hear the seed of his statements this last week. Just three years ago, at a dinner party in New York City, Omer, who was then Deputy Prime Minister, said the following, We're tired of fighting. We're tired of being courageous. We are tired of winning. We are tired of defeating our enemies. We're just tired. But if we go back further, not just a few years, not even a few decades or centuries, but three millennium, if we go back, we find the Lord had prophesied this very thing would happen to His people Israel. This very thing would come about. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will all flee at the threat of five men until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. A desolate picture. The father offers repentance and rest. The children prefer to run in rebellion. And it's no wonder that Omerit and all Israel are tired, currently missing the one thing which can guarantee a kingdom of peace, and that is repentance and rest. Now this morning, I'm not going to launch an Israeli prophecy update, and I'm not meaning to rail on the Israeli people either, but I want to ask you a very personal question. Do you ever just get tired of fighting? I mean, how, how appropriate in this stage of things in America do you ever just get tired of, of, of standing up? Tired of battling against sin and unbelief in this world? Do you ever get tired of sin in your own life and facing that battle? Ever find yourself lying in bed at night ready to go to sleep and just going, I'm so tired of having to fight all the time. You're tired of being courageous or tired even of winning, even tired of defeating the enemy. I'm just, just tired of it, Lord. What's interesting to me is in Matthew chapter 11, the chapter begins with a man who's discouraged. As we talked about last week, John the Baptist, he's in prison, he's discouraged. He's not sure, is Jesus the right person? Is he the one that we should be following? And Jesus sends word back to him, absolutely declaring who he is, who he was. So far, Jesus has told John's disciples to go tell him what's going on. He said, tell John, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And then he goes on in the chapter to honor John the Baptist as a great man while quickly pronouncing judgment on that very generation. That generation who were rejecting not only John's proclamation of repentance, but Jesus' own call to the kingdom. 
And in the midst of all this, Jesus turns to pronounce severe judgment on those three cities of His most plenteous miracles. Because they would not repent. You might wonder why. Why all of a sudden the shift to judgment? Jesus has been going along mostly very positively. Healing, teaching, drawing people to Him. Then all of a sudden at the end of chapter 11, boom, He starts to judge. And He judges harshly. And He judges severely. Why the shift? Because as the Lord said in Isaiah 30 verse 15, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. I can give you all the rest you need, but you've got to repent. I can give you all the salvation you could ever desire, but it's in quietness and it's in trust. And it is not in working it out and running And my friends, though I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I cannot solve the Israeli-Palestinian crisis any more than you can. What I can do this morning, what Jesus actually does this morning, is offer you rest. Real rest. Psalm 46.10, the Lord says, Cease striving and know that I am God. Well, let's do that this morning. Let's at least for this hour cease striving and know that He is God. It's amazing to me. Steve shared about Mary and Martha. That's exactly the message of that story. Cease striving, Martha. Join your sister Mary at my feet and know who I am. Come to me. Now in Matthew 11, again, Jesus is clearly saddened and disappointed himself by the rejection of these three cities on the northern edge of the waters of the Galilee. And you'd think a kind of weariness would set in for Jesus himself. But watch what he does here. After all these things have occurred, Jesus does some things, says some things that I believe give us some keys to finding rest in Him. And the first one is Jesus relies on His Father. Look at verse 25 again. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus relies on His Father. In this moment, before discouragement can even get to Him, He pronounces the judgment, recognizing the rejection and the rebellion of these three cities, but before He can even get bummed out about it Himself, He turns immediately to Father. I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father. I worship you, Father. He runs to His Father. John 5.19 You've heard it before. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner, for the Father loves the Son. I believe that was a great comfort for Jesus. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, came as Son. And so the relationship that He has, we've talked about this quite a bit recently, the relationship Jesus has with the Father as Son, Son in the Godhead, is an example to all of us as sons and daughters how we are to relate to God. Not as a distant deity, not as some kind of religious being out there, not a higher power, but Father. Jesus turns to His Father. And you see Him do it time and time again in His ministry. He steals away to spend quiet time with Father. To speak with Father. He relied on His Father. Comedian, Christian comedian Tim Hawkins has some fun making uh, light of the way some people overuse Father in prayer. 
If you've seen his, his routine, one of the things he talks about is people who begin to pray and they just say, Father, 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 and over and over and over using the word Father. You know what, though? I, I personally don't think you can overuse that name. I don't think you can oversay or overspeak or overstate your relationship as a child of God as you pray, as you come before Him and say, Father. I don't think that term is overused at all. Here we catch Jesus using this word of affection five times in three verses. He uses it once in verse 25, again verse 26, and three more times in 27. Father, 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 because Jesus relies on His Father. He relies on the intimacy of that position as Son to the Father, the same Father on whom we are invited to rely. When we try to do things in our own strength, it is wearying, it is exhausting, but we take it to the Father and He can bear the weight. He can shoulder the struggle. Jesus said in John 14 too, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And again, that Father-Son relationship, their positions in the Trinity reveal to us something of our relationship with God. In fact, this is really powerfully stated. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. You may remember that wonderful scene at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20. How Mary's there and she's weeping and she's saying, they've taken the body of my Lord away and I don't know where they've put Him. And she's talking to who she thinks is the gardener, but it's not the gardener, it's Jesus Himself. And He speaks one word, He speaks her name, Mary. And she turns and she says, Rabboni. She realizes who it is, it's Jesus. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we know she grabbed Him. We know she wrapped her arms around Him. She would not let go. She clung to Him. Why do we know that? Because Jesus said, Stop clinging to Me. (laughs) Stop clinging to Me, Mary. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I'm here. But go now. John 20, 17. Go to My brethren and say to them, listen to this, I ascend to My Father and Your Father. I ascend to My Father and Your Father, to My God and Your God. He is Your Father. And so in those times of weariness where it's too much, you rely on your Father. You run to your Father. Notice also that while Jesus relies on that fatherly intimacy, secondly, Jesus eyes His Father's supremacy. He eyes His Father's supremacy. In verse 25, He uses a phrase that is used very seldom in the Scriptures, surprisingly because it's very descriptive. That is, He calls God Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Psalm 46.10 again says, See striving and know that I am God. And then God goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He is Lord of heaven, yes, but He is also Lord of earth. And Jesus refers to Him as such. He eyes His Father's supremacy, His strength, His power, His majesty. He not only recognizes that fatherly intimacy, but the godly supremacy. Gang, that godly supremacy is key to us relying on our Father. Because this is not a Father who lets us down. This is not a Father who is incapable of bearing the weight of our burdens. This is the Supreme God. He is the Creator. Lord of Heaven, Lord of Earth. This title, Lord of Heaven and Earth, calls to mind the blessing of that mysterious king, that mysterious priest named Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14. Abram had just come back from war. And out of Yerushalayim, out of the city of peace, out of Jerusalem, comes this king, Melchizedek. And he 
He, he comes before Abram, and, and Abram offers him a tithe. He worships him, literally. He brings out bread and wine, those pictures, the symbols of communion. And as he comes out, he says these words, Genesis 14:9, blessed, he blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That recognition of the supremacy of God and the power to handle everything. To handle everything. My daughter was freaking out last week. She had been sick for three days. And then Monday back at school and the homework load was overwhelming. And the workload and, and, and everything going on in her life and, and she was just on the point of tears. And I, I said to her, I said, Hannah, you know what? Remember that you're 16 years old. Remember you're still living at home. Worst case scenario, there will be food. There will be shelter. There will be clothing on your back and there will be love. Even if the rest of it all falls apart, we're still we're, we're good. And even as I spoke those words, I thought, that's, that's the same for me. I mean, I think that I'm the one that's responsible for my family and my home and my bills and my, and my food and everything else. And then I realized, you know what? If it all falls apart, I still have my father. And my father is strong. And my father is going to take care of everything. And so like Jesus, I can rely on my father as I eye my father's supremacy. I know he's got it all together. Some may even admit to the lordship of God in the heavens, recognizing, again, some kind of higher power. Some will look up and say, yeah, there's a God out there. Great high thinkers. And even scientists today have a tendency to say there's got to be something out there. Some supreme being Distant, but nonetheless existent. We see more and more a recognition of that. The Lord of Earth? (laughs) That's another thing. Highly exalted God and close personal Father. You know, the Milky Way galaxy, I believe I've shared this with you before, but it's approximately 100,000 light years across. Just our galaxy. 100,000 light years. Traveling at the speed of light... That's 186,000 miles per second. It would take you 100 million years to go from one side of our galaxy to the next. How vast. Just this speck of the universe, this place is where we live. But you know what the Bible says about our Father? It says in Isaiah 40 verse 12 that He has marked off the heavens by the span. He's marked off the heavens by the span. You know what the span is? That word span is literally the spread of His fingers. I can't get from one end of our galaxy to the other without going the speed of light, which would cause me to explode, and without spending 100 million years to do it, and yet God went, Milky Way, that's good. Here's a galaxy. We'll place that one over there. The span of His hand. But check this out. In the verse that just precedes that, Isaiah verse, chapter 40, verse 11, Isaiah says this, Like a shepherd He will tend His flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He is Lord of heaven and he is Lord of earth. Powerful and imposing and yet personal and paternal. Rely on the Father, eyeing the Father's supremacy. It's a profound and awesome truth. And, And there are great thinkers again who cannot wrap their minds around this. But children can. Children seem to get God. Little ones just seem to have no problem. With it. We, as we get older, we start to really overthink stuff and, and try to figure God out. And that's when we get freaked out and, and can't understand. But a child gets it. A child understands. Dad, how did the trees get here? Well, God made them. Okay, and off they go playing. Happy and accepting. And Jesus says, 
in verse 25, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. To infants. The third thing in our list, Jesus denies a complicated relationship. He denies a complicated relationship. That word infants there is napios, and napios means a child, not of age yet. could be a baby, but it also means someone who's unskilled and unlearned, not highly studied. I've quoted Ironside a lot. I've been using his commentary quite a bit lately. And speaking about the importance of preaching the simple truth, Ironside put it this way. He said, always put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddos can get to them. Keep it simple, because it is. Because God has, while hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, He's revealed them to Napios, to the unlearned, to the simple, to the children. Jesus did this. He put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddos could get to them. Simple men and women and children, they just flocked to Jesus, even as great scholars and religious minds of the day were trying to figure Him out and had trouble working Him out, and were rejecting and rebelling against Him. These same great scholars, the Sanhedrin, the 70 of Israel, this ruling council, slated to be, or, or, or thought to be, the smartest of the smart, the most religious of the religious in all of Israel, they stood there gathered together in their council chamber. In Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John come before them. Peter and John, the fishermen from Capernaum. Those guys who were unlearned and unskilled didn't have a whole lot going for them. And the Bible tells us as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained. I've got to tell you what those words are in the Greek. Uneducated is agrammatos. They had no grammar. Okay? And untrained is idiotis. These guys are idiots. The Sanhedrin was thinking they have no schooling. But as they stand before us, the Bible says they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These idiots have been with Jesus. They remind us of Him. They're talking like Him. They are confident like He was. My friends, until we fall under the Lordship of Jesus, all the learning in the world will do us no good. But once we come under His authority, once we've been with Jesus, we get it. We begin to understand the simple and profound relationship that we have with our Father God, who is Lord of Heaven and is Lord of Earth and is Father to me. The relationship is not difficult. It is not complicated. Don't make it such. Don't think as you're trying to approach God, I'm not sure about the words or the approach or the right way to do it. I've got to find the right Scripture so so that when I talk to Him, He'll be impressed. No. Jesus denies a complicated relationship. Jesus prays this brief prayer. And then immediately after praying that, in verse 27, He makes a very powerful statement. He says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And in this statement, Jesus implies the Incarnation. He implies the Incarnation. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was seen in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 
Jesus would later say this, the same thing. The same thing that He speaks in verse 27. He would later say more simply in John chapter 14, verse 6. No one comes to the Father but through Me. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Jesus is not only the one who points us to the Father, but He is our great God and Savior. Jesus implies that incarnation. Paul calls Him our great God and Savior in Titus 2.13. Peter calls Him our God and Savior in 2 Peter 1, verse 1. John refers to the fact that He is God in 1 John 5.20. And Jesus Himself declares this to be the truth in John 14.9. When He says, Philip, have I been with you so long? You don't know who I am? I and the Father are one. Why are you pointing out the incarnation? Well, other than the fact that Jesus is hinting at it there in verse 27, gang, listen, in the incarnation we find rest. In the incarnation of Jesus we find rest. How how many of you have post-it notes all over your fridge? Or maybe your desk? How many of you have your calendars and daytimers just busting at the seams such that you can hardly even get them closed? Or maybe you have a Blackberry that goes off with constant meeting reminders. And when you think about your schedule and you look at the next week, you're not sure how you're going to possibly get all this stuff done that has to get done. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if you just stopped? Would the world stop spinning on its axis? Would the sun have trouble getting up in the morning? It's amazing to me how, gang, when we disengage, the world doesn't end. I've learned this from leaving previous churches where I did ministry, and, and as I left that ministry thinking, okay, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to do it without me. And the ministry flourishes almost days after I've left there. And you begin to realize it doesn't all come down to me. We think it does because we're so self-centered, you know. The world revolves around us. Everything orbits me. And so I've got to make sure I balance all my plates and I've got everything going and I'm completing every task and I'm checking it off and it's exhausting. You do not hold the world in your hands. The ocean waves don't rise and fall at the sound of your command and the sun doesn't wake for your wake-up call to shine. What I'm saying here, gang, is this. Everything that had to be done has been done by the Son. Everything that needed to be accomplished for all eternity has been accomplished by Jesus. If we couldn't do another thing in our lives, it wouldn't decrease in the slightest what Jesus has already accomplished. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. One of my favorite verses, we quote it off in John 6, verse 28, when the people said to Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Are you ready? That you believe in Him whom He has sent. You want to work for Me? Believe Me. I want to read beyond that. What does He say in the next verse? (laughs) Because there's got to be a list that goes with it. No. No. Think about Stuart Corey. A lot of you remember Stuart, passed away a while ago now, but who was a man who was greatly accomplished. He had tremendous success in his life. And when riding a, a, a bike up in Whistler, wiped out and was paralyzed from the neck down, spent the last, I don't know how long, two years of his life? Close to two years, unable to do anything. And he was so blessed in the Lord when he died. 
Because here was a man who had, as, as less and I went and visited him, I'll never forget this. The Lord made it very clear. Here is a man who has come into the Holy of Holies. Who now, because he's not able to do anything else, all he can do is just be with me. And Stuart knew that. He got it. Everything that had to be done has been done by the Son, which is, I believe, what gives Jesus the right to say what He says next. And by the way, I'm not saying be irresponsible and blow off life. I'm not saying stop doing what you're doing. I want to get a bunch of phone calls next week from people's bosses saying, what are you telling these people? But don't place such a high value on what you've got to finish. There's always going to be something to do. There's always going to be another check to put in the box. There's always going to be another post-it note. There's always the one that, that slips and falls under the desk and you find six months later and realize it was never done but nobody know it, no one even noticed. <laughs> okay, we'll just check that one off. Jesus has the right because of what He's accomplished, what He's done to say the following, Come to Me. Come to Me, verse 28. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Don't miss the placement of this call to rest. There's another verse that is quoted an awful lot in Christianity because it brings such peace. But where does Jesus say it? Immediately after this scathing judgment. Immediately after recognizing the rebellion and the rejection of the people, He says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A single breath separates the rightful judgment of the King from the abundant grace of the Savior. J. Vernon McGee says it's like coming out of a blizzard into the warmth of a spring day, like passing from a storm into a calm, like going from darkness into light. In the space of a heartbeat, Jesus turns from national judgment, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you rebelled, you rejected me, and you are judged for it. He turns from there to personal invitation. Come to me. He looks to the individual. Come to me. He talks to the person. Come to me. And number five, if you've been tracking these things, Jesus applies his own disposition. He applies his own disposition. He's looking at a heavy laden people, burdened and weighted down by the oppressive regime of Rome, burdened and weighted down by the oppressive religious requirements of the day. The people from outside, the Romans were hard on them. The people from inside, their own religious leaders were placing heavy burdens on them. But there's more than this. There's more than just what's happening externally and physically in their lives when Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. His call is far greater than come to me if you've had a rough day. Come to me if you've had a tough week. Come to me, Rick, if you're just kind of busy and tired. Come to me if at 9 o'clock at night you've got to hit the pillow because you're just wiped out because you've been doing too much. It's more than that. Far more than that. He's calling you and me out from under the weight of sin. Now forget about your Blackberry for a moment. What about the ringing of your conscience and the ringing of conviction? That ringing that we try to ignore or mask. The one that aches in my heart, condemning secret sin and hidden motives. You know what really makes people exhausted? Our sin does. More than anything else, that is the thing that is the burden that Jesus says, I want to give you rest from that. Come to me. Come to me. David said in Psalm 38 verse 4, he says, My iniquities are gone over my head. 
as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. You ever feel that way? My sin is just too much. The weight, I, I cannot bear up under it. Jesus invites a freedom from the greatest weight we bear, which is our sin. And our shame, and the guilt, and the bitterness, and the hurt that comes with it. Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say go to church. All you who are weary and heavy laden, find a good church and plug in. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say download a sermon and I will give you rest. He doesn't say get counseling or read a book or take a seminar or even join the quest for authentic manhood. He doesn't say to do that. It's not that any of these things aren't great things to do. That we can and and, and should and they involve our lives and things that point us to Jesus. But all Jesus says in all of this mess is He says, come to Me. Come to Me. You don't need a cathedral or a barn. You need Me. How do I do that? How do I just come to... I mean, again, we're down to childhood thinking. This is so simple, it's almost too simple for me. How do I do it? Don't make it complicated. Remember that children just get God. So come to Jesus. Get alone with Him. Talk to Him. Break the silence between you. I was sharing with some friends just on Friday, even to speak the name of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. If your sin is heavy, if your temptations are great, just say, Jesus, I accept your authority. Jesus, I declare you over me. Jesus, I need you. Come to me, he says. What he does not say is to exchange one burden for another. That's what religion does. Come to church, and we'll take all your sin, and we'll replace it with ministry, and guilt, and busyness, responsibility. Jesus doesn't replace one thing with another. Sometimes people come to Jesus seeking rest and the religious institution straps them with a heavier burden than before. That's what was going on with the Jewish people. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were saying, come on, come to God, and we've got a nice backpack of guilt for you. A nice burden to shoulder. Matthew 23.4, and Jesus just went off on this game. Don't miss that Jesus was angered by religion. Talking about the Pharisees, he says they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move even so much as a finger. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 15. Hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. More work, more guilt, more burden. No, Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. The yoke he invites us to. Again, it's it's his disposition. It's his character. In his only self-description in the gospel accounts, Jesus says, I am gentle and humble. That word gentle, we talked about it before. Praus in the Greek. It means strength under control. It means power. In fact, the word praus is used sometimes for a horse that's been broken. 
I, I look out at the horses at times, and, and my wife fell off a horse one time and still occasionally has some neck problems. I don't trust the beasts. I don't care how broken they are. Because they're big. They are big animals. I look at Buck. I rode Buck once. I've never felt more out of control in my life. And that was just right here in the circle three times around, and I was done. Because there is so much power in that animal. And yet it was under control. That's Paus. I am gentle. I'm gentle. I am Lord of heavens and earth. But I'm gentle. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Perhaps you've heard this, that the, the yoke, that was what bound, that, that, that wooden uh, thing that bound two oxen together. And usually in a yoke, when two oxen were yoked together to plow a field or to work, there was one oxen that was the stronger of the two that would lead the two. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yoke yourself up to me and then let me do the leading. Don't pull against me because that's not going to work. You're just going to make it hard for yourself. Yoke yourself to me and let me lead. Go with the flow. Go where I go. Which is why Jesus said, that the one born of the Spirit, that you know, like the wind blows wherever it will, and you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, so it is with someone who's born of the Spirit. Because you go with the flow of His Spirit, as opposed to the flow of your own. But i got to go this way. And He's going, okay, yoke to me, follow my lead, go with the flow. True rest is never in our own doing, it's by the disposition of His Holy Spirit. By the way, verse 28, when Jesus says, I will give you rest... Literally translated, he's saying, I will rest you. I will rest you. The picture you get when he says that, I will rest you, is, is as a parent laying a, a sleeping child down to bed. I will put you to sleep. I will put you to bed. I will tuck you in. I will rest you. I have one more thing to share with you here about this. There are two aspects of this rest that are obvious in Jesus' words. One is the sinner's rest, the rest of redemption. And the other is the believer's rest. The believer's rest. Turn turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The sinner's rest or the rest of redemption is the promise to anyone who comes to Jesus to be saved. Anyone who comes to Him recognizing the weight of sin, He says, come offload that exhausting burden of all that junk you've been carrying around. Offload it onto Me. Let Me carry that instead of you. And He carried it all the way to the cross. Let Me do away with that. The sinner's rest. And Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this this, this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. The sinner's rest. It's the kind of rest that energizes a person to literally, as, as Paul says, to exult. Exult means to jump, to leap up in the sure hope of seeing God's glory. See, that rest is promised to anybody who will come to Christ. I will take that burden of sin off you. And you will have rest like you never did before. But there's a second rest. And believers, listen closely. It's what I would call the believer's rest. And it's the rest of sanctification. Because Paul says in verse 3, not only this, 
but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because of the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now it might sound tiring to read the list. Tribulation brings about perseverance, and proven, which brings about proven character, which brings about hope. Man, so I've got to go through that stuff. But we miss the point. We are walking in the believer's rest such that tribulation is not hard. That perseverance is not difficult. That proven character developed by His Spirit is not a tough thing to do. Now people on the outside will look and go, you're walking a tough road. And on the inside you kind of go, you know, it just doesn't seem like it. It really doesn't seem that hard. I mean, I understand. You look at the circumstances of my life and you say, yeah, you've got this going on and this and this and that. And how do you bear up under all this stuff? But the believer in Jesus who is being sanctified by the Son, there's a restfulness there that cannot be explained outside of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the believer's rest. So not only does He give us rest from our sin, but He gives us rest in trials, rest in persecution, rest in tribulation, rest from the worries of the world. Come to Me and I will rest you. He says, I will rest you. All that to say, when we walk yoked up to Jesus in the power of the Spirit of Christ, we don't tire of the fighting. And we don't tire of being courageous. We don't tire of winning. (laughs) We never tire of defeating the enemy. If you've heard of or if you think that Christian faith is tiring and exhausting, you've been deceived. That's not Jesus. Jesus says, I will rest you. I want to invite you to bow your heads for a moment. As I read a psalm written long ago that speaks, I think, beautifully of this rest. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're kind of getting tired of trying to make it work yourself, then I invite you to ask Him for His rest this morning. And those of you who are believers in Jesus, who have been walking with Him, if you're feeling weary and tired, I think the enemy has has deceived you. Because Jesus has rest for you. Let's bow. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.